Namaste and good evening to all of you. We are continuing with our explicitation of the yogic meanings contained in the message transmitted by Krishna to Arjuna, to his friend and disciple Arjuna, as rendered in the fundamental Indian text of spirituality, the Bhagavad Gita. This is an ongoing commentary. It started in the last season. We are now in the chapter 5 of this fundamental text, close to the end of the chapter 5. Today we'll move from chapter 5 to chapter 6, actually. And this chapter 5, which is called the Yoga of Renunciation of the Fruits of Action, which is exactly the definition of Karma Yoga, the famous Indian text Bhagavad Gita is famous among others, through the fact that it is the primary, it is the primeval text explicitating karma yoga. From the standpoint of karma yoga, Bhagavad Gita is irreplaceable, it is unique. And the chapter number 5 has the title, the yoga of renouncing the fruits of action, which is exactly the definition of karma yoga. So this was one of the chapters which was mostly focused on karma yoga itself, although Krishna speaks about other things as well. In the last shlokas, a shloka is the Sanskrit name for a strophe, a verset. In the last verset, Krishna actually draws conclusions as the end of the chapter comes close, and he basically sets forth some standards, some high goals, some high ideals, reminding to Arjuna what the prize that waits at the end of the great race, what that prize is. So for the last five to ten verses, actually Krishna did not speak about the karma yoga per se, but more he spoke about the results of it, the final success, the rewards of reaching perfection in yoga in general, not only in karma yoga. And this is where we start today at the strophe number 26, the verset number 26. The shlokas are two-liners and the correct word would probably be verset for it. <coughs> and here is what Krishna says. He has been describing the exalted condition of spiritual realization, and he continues. 26. Absolute freedom. Actually, the word which is used in Sanskrit here is Brahma Nirvanam. Brahma, Brahman in Sanskrit means absolute, and Nirvana is Nirvana. Nirvana literally means extinction, like when you blow off a candle flame, but it is interpreted by most people to mean freedom, supreme freedom, because Buddha, when he reached nirvana, he said, I have reached freedom from the chain of successive reincarnations, I have reached the ultimate freedom. So, you can say that the expression Brahma nirvana means absolute nirvana, absolute freedom, if you stretch the meanings a little bit. Absolute freedom, which means also the ecstasy, the bliss, the liberation, the enlightenment, the Brahmic bliss. 
exists on all sides for those self-controlled ascetics who are free from desire and anger, who have, sel- who have controlled their thoughts and who have realized the self. That is, again, a very beautiful image. It's not practical, like you are going to see that the very next shloka is a very practical one, but uh, it simply sets the standards. Nobody can say that it has not been said clearly. There are yoga texts such as the Geranda Samhita, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, and other very practical yoga texts where the authors don't bother too much to describe the effects. Like they take it for granted that your guru taught you what the effects are and that's why you are doing yoga because you feel motivated and you know what the whole thing is about. And therefore they don't bother to lure you into the yoga practice. Here, on the contrary, Krishna often lures people into practice by telling them clearly, in case you didn't know what comes from this, that you are uh, controlling your thoughts, that you realize the self, that you are free from desire and anger, and all that, in case you didn't realize the effect of this is Brahma Nirvana, Absolute nirvana, absolute freedom, and it's a nirvana, it's a bliss, which, as he says here, exists on all sides. You are like bathed in it, you are surrounded in it. It's a very often formulation in the yoga of energy that some things are inside you, outside you, throughout, inside and outside, nowhere and everywhere. It is a sort of way of speaking about omnipresence. Therefore, again, this shloka says, the disciplined men, the ascetics, the ones that have learned the technology, free from desire and anger, these are again the two opposites. It's not only about desire and anger, but desire and anger are like just expressing the two opposites of the mind. On one hand, whatever we like, whatever is good to us, subjectively good to us, pleasurable, enchanting, we develop attachment to it, and whatever we have attachment to, we have desire for it, because we are attached, and anger, if something is hurting us, wounding us, then we reject it. Of course, some people don't develop anger, some people develop fear, that's an alternative to anger, Some people would say fear leads to anger, anger leads to fear, whichever way. With the point being that there is always a positive side of the mind and a negative one. We explain this here in the school very much when we talk about aparigraha, the detachment, the non-possessiveness, because this tendency of the mind to get attached to what is pleasant and rejectful as to what is unpleasant is just a very primitive characteristic of the mind. If, for example, you touch a red-hot plate of iron, it burns you really badly, and then you have to be a moron to touch it the second time. If you are very thick-headed and you don't get it, then you touch it the second time, and again it burns you really badly, and then only a self-destructive, suicidal, masochistic person would touch it the third time. 
It simply means you like pain because the brain simply says, Ow, this hurt. Ouch, this hurt. Then the third time you don't go there anymore. You avoid it. You are afraid of it. You feel like staying away from it. You can hate it, but you are definitely not going there. This is an automatic mechanism which exists in biological life, in vegetal life. It exists in animals and it is a sort of self-preservation. You eat something which gives you energy and makes you feel good. You want more of that, even if it's unhealthy, such as, for example, a sugar rush. You eat something with lots of sugar and then you feel a rush of energy, although that rush of energy is not really healthy in a holistic way but you like it, and so you get addicted to chocolate, you get addicted to sugar, and something hurts you, you stay away from it, you develop fear or rejection of it. This is an animal blind mechanism, and the human beings have to rise above it. As long as you did not rise above this mechanism, you are still a very primitive animal, because sometimes human beings have to do things which are not pleasurable and which are right and which have to be done. Surgery might not be pleasurable, but sometimes it may be necessary. Pulling out a tooth which is beyond redemption might not be pleasurable, but it may be necessary. Other and other, waking up at 5 o'clock to cook breakfast for a 100 orphan children is maybe not very pleasant, but you do it anyway because that's your task, that's your duty, that's your uh, karma yoga. And therefore, it is obvious for everybody that human beings have to rise above this primitive thing that our mind is built with like and dislike. Anybody who falls for this, oh, I like this and I dislike this. Did you think about it? Maybe there is something which should override your feeling. Yes, I know you dislike this, but still it has to be done. Are you ready to step over your dislike and do the right thing? That's what a spiritual human being would do. Only a human being that is primitive and egocentric and listens only to their most primary impulses says, well, I don't care if it's good, I still don't like it and I won't do it. A spiritual human being would have a certain sense of sacrifice, a spirit of self-sacrifice, and will say, yes, I'm not going to like it, but I'm going to do it anyway, because it's the right thing to do. And thus, this thing with desire and anger is just an illustration of a theme which is arch-frequent, totally present in the Indian culture, that you have to stay away from Attachment and rejection from desire and anger, as Krishna says here. So disciplined man, freed from desire and anger. So those who have come to a higher spiritual evolution and they are not Pashus anymore. The tantric tradition calls such people who have not evolved to that level Pashu. And Pashu is a very politically incorrect and very tough name because it means cattle, it means animals. So if you are cattle, you're, they are definitely not good for spiritual higher levels. 
But if you stopped being cattle, if you stopped being a partial, then automatically you are freed from desire and anger. That's not easy. Today in Kali Yuga, most of the inhabitants of Kali Yuga are grown up into a sort of moral and ethical permissiveness. One of the mantras being, everything goes. No, it's not true. For Jesus, not everything goes. For Buddha, not everything goes. This sentence that, oh, you know, everything goes. We are very tolerant. But Jesus is not very tolerant. Neither is Buddha, although they are compassionate and loving. So this is a stupidity which is just a mask of the demonic to hide under the mask of tolerance. Oh, come on. Yes, I'm raping children from time to time. But you have to be tolerant. Everybody is having some uh, fad of their own, you know. Some people smoke. Some people smoke dope. Some people practice, I don't know what, sexual things. I'm having my own weird things, so what's the big deal? Be tolerant. Everything goes. No. Everybody, all of you knows that there is a place where you draw the line and beyond that line it really doesn't go anymore. It's only that different societies and different traditions draw that red line in different places. Some people draw it closer, some people draw it further, but there will always be a red line somewhere which you are not supposed to cross. And therefore, this story is very clear. In the beginning, I said, in Kali Yuga, in, which is the name of the present epoch of time, people are educated in a very materialistic, skeptical, cynical, selfish, and very often, yes, a demonic temperament in which everything is justified if it's good for me. If it's good for me, I'm going to do it, and I don't give a damn if the other people don't like it and all that. And basically, in this sort of mentality, it's very, very difficult to find any more men and women who are rising above desire and anger. Ninety-something percent of the world population is subjected, enslaved to desire and anger, to attraction and rejection. This is the level of the telenovelas. Whenever you watch telenovelas and soap operas, everybody in there is an example of desire and anger. Everybody wants money, fame, name, richness, something. Everybody hates or rejects some people, some things, some circumstances. Therefore, a spiritual human being must be able to rise above. It doesn't mean that one like Buddha doesn't have likes and dislikes. But the likes and dislikes of Buddha, they are not governed by his own personal preferences. He likes what God likes and dislikes what God dislikes. He is not using this organic, biological, selfish set of values by which whatever is good to me is good and whatever is unpleasant to me must be bad. That's the egocentric, terrible level at which many people are. So actually it's very difficult. This is one of the goals of the primary stages of yoga. Work, rise your consciousness, <coughs> discipline your mind and your sense organs so as to become a little bit at least, maybe not 100% in the beginning, but at least a little bit more detached. 
a little bit more out of the desire and anger or desire and rejection. So, says Krishna, the disciplined man, he means about spiritual discipline, of course, freed from desire and anger, who have disciplined their thoughts, so with mind control, that's always coming up, without mind control, you can get some spiritual breakthrough for a second, and then your mind being a monkey goes somewhere else, and you have instability. Like you can get something very big and very beautiful, but only for five seconds. It's not enough. It's like you put a beam, a laser beam, or like you focus a magnifying glass, the sunshine, on a piece of paper. If you focus it for three seconds, it will not burn. If you want to burn through, you have to keep that magnifying glass for five, ten seconds until smoke starts coming out, and then suddenly it bursts into flames and you burn through. This is exactly the same here. That's why you need to have mind control you may reach something exceptional like I do some breathing exercises or I'm in a very beautiful circumstance with somebody giving me an incredible affective joy and suddenly it's like ha oh, I felt an incredible love keep it for one hour stay into it for one hour uh, no after five seconds I somehow my mind thought about the shopping mall and I kind of lost it that's why it's not enough to reach some states you have to be able to stay on them and only mental. That's the great gift of mental concentration, to be able to stay on something on which you want to stay. Such as you focus on Vishuddha Chakra, you stay on Vishuddha Chakra. You don't think five seconds about Vishuddha Chakra and then you're all over the place. No, you stay with it. Persistence produces effects. So disciplined men freed from desire and anger who have disciplined their thoughts and have realized the self, that's the big one, that is already meaning a state of self-realization, which is a state of samadhi, realizing that beyond the mind, there is something even deeper than the mind, which witnesses the mind, and which is our true self, which is the inner self, which is Atman, the supreme self. So, a lot of conditions going above desire and anger, disciplining the mind, having realized the self, such people, you, many are going to say, Swami, you lost me, I'm not even half through this. I know, but Krishna says, this is if you will bother to acquire those list of virtues, that list of virtues, then you will get the fruit, and the promised fruit is those people Find eternal freedom, Brahma Nirvana, absolute freedom in the divine consciousness everywhere. Everywhere. It's very important. From all sides, it's omnipresent. Either you sleep or you walk or you eat or you make love or you watch a sunset or you stand on your head, it's there. It's there whenever you want it, wherever you want it. It's everywhere. It's from all sides. Therefore, this number 26, was again stating very clearly like there is no ambiguity. Don't try to say, oh, maybe some people will get it and some people might not. No, Krishna is very adamant on it. When you fulfill that list of conditions, you have reached Brahma Nirvana. You have reached absolute Nirvana. Don't come and uh, make it complicated and so on. Things are pretty simple 
in that way. And on the number 27, suddenly, out of the blue, sometimes these Sanskrit texts have very weird attitude as to the continuity of the text. Sometimes you believe that it's like bad editing. It's exactly like somebody shoots a movie, and then when it comes to the editing, the editor puts the clips in a wrong sequence, and then suddenly the movie doesn't really make sense. In some yoga texts, and here you have a bit of an example, it's not the most uh, acute of them, the text goes, it's exactly like the author, like the person that wrote it, was raving, is in a state of ecstasy of some sort, and it pours out of them, and suddenly it's like they remember something, and it pours out there, and it sometimes it's a bit like, isn't this incoherent? Like, I could have made a more logical order of all this subject. I could have taken these strophes and grouped them more logically. Like a Swiss engineer could have made a more orderly Bhagavad Gita. It may have been more orderly, but the spirit of the people who wrote it was rambling like this. It came out of the great infinite and they poured it on paper, and sometimes out of the blue something comes, and you say, by the way, where did that... Like, what's the connection between 27 and 26? For some 5-10 shlokas, Krishna speaks about how great the enlightenment is, and how you obtain freedom and destruction of negative karma, and all those promises, and now he suddenly describes a technique, which is very rare... In the whole of Bhagavad Gita, there are only two places where something technical is described. Bhagavad Gita is not really a text of practice. It's more a text of philosophy, teachings, metaphysics. There are texts which are full of practices, like when you open the Geranda Samhita or the Hatha Yoga Pradipika, or it's practice, 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 practice. Philosophy, not so much. Here, it's on the contrary. It's a story. Krishna teaches. These are teachings which comes directly from the mouth of Krishna. And therefore, it's a whole story into it. And, but on the other hand, there are not so many techniques. Also, these two techniques, this one in chapter 5 and the other one which comes in chapter 6, either we catch it tonight or one of the following evenings, they are very remarkable because at the same time, you can see that they are very little physical. I always tell to people, and many of you haven't heard this one, that as the centuries have passed, yoga has changed. Yoga of today, the 21st century, and I'm not talking about the yoga which is relegated to simple gymnastics on contortionists, because that's really not yoga. That's a caricature of yoga. But if there is indeed some yoga... The yoga of the 21st century is very much not like the yoga of the Yoga Sutra of Patanjali 25 centuries ago, or like the yoga of the Bhagavad Gita, maybe even older, more than 25 centuries ago. Why? I said it and I am saying it all the time. People have changed. People 25 centuries ago, they had an extremely simple mind which was extremely easily excitable 
because people's minds were unexcited and generally peaceful. Exception made of events such as war, conquest, Alexander the Great conquering the world and stuff like this. The average person was born in a village, lived in that village, married in that village, got, grew old in that village, and died in that village. They very seldom traveled more than 100 kilometers around their village, almost never had seen large cities. There was no printed press, there were no books, there were no newspapers, there was basically no form of media, there was no radio, there was no television, there was no internet, there was no, nothing. No printed press, as I said. At the most, you could find an itinerant, a vagrant singer, musician, who would come by and play some music at one sitting in the late night, or some theater, some rural theater, some puppet theater, or something like this, or some temple dancer. This, and these were happening like once a month or once every six months, and they were big events, and the whole village would talk about them. There are today still places in South America, in Africa, in Asia, where people live like a thousand years ago, and with no electricity even. And if you go there, you feel that in two weeks you are freaking out because it's the most boring place on earth because nothing seems to happen. And yet people are born there, live there, die there, and they don't get bored. Why? Because their brain is calibrated on a different level of excitement. We in the Western world, we live in a constant excitement. Our brain and our nervous system is whipped up constantly by irritation, by all sorts of excitation. And when suddenly you go in a 10-day silent retreat or something, you go neurotic. There are people who go to Buddhist meditation retreats of a very strict kind, and they go directly to the mental hospital. By the seventh day, they are taken by a car into a straitjacket because they lose their mind. And because I know, because it happened to some people whom I knew, we asked and most of the Buddhist monasteries and said, what are you surprised? It happens with the Farangs all the time because they come from New York, from Times Square, and they expect that they can sit and meditate for 10 days without speaking and being like completely blank. The leap is too big. Because your brain is a monkey and it's used with constant masturbation, with constant excitation of the senses. And that's why the people who live in that placid way, for whom the days seem to stretch forever, and for whom the time flows very slowly, and who are not having any major excitation of any kind, those people have a different way they read something, somebody tells them a few words, and it's like, oh my God, you know, if you read them a Purana, a legend, the myths of ancient Greece, you know, the Greek mythology, or something, people see it in front of their eyes. It's like the theater of the year. People are so easily excited because suddenly something comes and gives color to their life, which otherwise is very colorless and very bland in a way, and they are happy with it as it is. They are calibrated to live at that level of excitation, and if you take them to an exciting city, 
they would freak out in a few days and they would get neurotic and they would just want to get out of there because they lost their peace. For them, their quietness is peace. And for some of the modern people, that quietness is boredom and madness. Oh, if, if it stays quiet like this, if we don't get something to do, I'm going to scream. There are people who get bored even in Kopangan. You come to Kopangan and the fact that there is no cinema, there are not enough clubs, that you don't do this, you don't do that, people say it's time to get out of here. Why? There have been people who lived here the whole life. And they are born here and they don't get bored here because their brain is calibrated onto this rhythm, onto this lifestyle. And because people were so different, the yoga and the spirituality which they needed to practice was different. And thus, to make the long story short, hundreds of years ago, thousands of years ago, people were practicing a spirituality in which there was, for example, not need for too many props. The spiritual practice was not so technological. You take a mantra, you visualize this mantra as written in Tibetan script, you visualize it in your heart chakra, small as a bindu, as a droplet of light, and then it's like etched with a chisel the size of a tip of a hair, and then this mantra moves through the top of your head, above the top of your head. This sort of yoga technology, which today we do a lot, and yoga is inimaginable without it today, this is a sort of engineering exciting, detailed thing, which people 2,000 years ago, at the time of these and others, they didn't need it. People just needed to be told a very general thing, close their eyes, and then they were there. Just to put it into perspective, the Indian traditional texts, the Hindu traditional texts, such as Mahanirvana Tantra, to give an example, where you find such a quote, they say that people in Satya Yuga, in the Golden Age, that would be like 20,000 years ago, were so spiritual that it was enough for them to close their eyes and they would go in Samadhi. All it took to go in Samadhi was to close your eyes. Today, if you close your eyes, if you are not very disturbed neurologically, which may happen, many people are very disturbed in their brain, but if you are kind of normal in your brain, when you close your eyes, the maximum which happens is that after a while, you start producing alpha waves. Your brain starts producing an increased amount of alpha waves just because you stay with the eyes closed. It's a big difference between producing some alpha waves and going to samadhi. That's why in 20,000 years ago, their yoga was, close your eyes, think about the top of the head, and that's it. Good, you have reached enlightenment. Congratulations. Today, that's completely, completely insufficient, and people do mudras, bandhas, kundalini, mantras, visualizations, and for years they press and press until such great things start happening. That is why... Here in the shloka number 27, you have an example of a technique which is not very physical. There are some physical references, but very vague. People say, give me details. Krishna doesn't, because details were not necessary. 
today, if we are teaching people svastikasana or something, they say, Swami, but the big toe should be put in or out or this or... Krishna doesn't even bother. Like, this is completely irrelevant, really, from the standpoint of Krishna. Today, it is relevant because people have a different kind of mind which is millimetrical on some physical details and needs to grasp some very material things. And that's why yoga in the 21st century is a yoga which is engineering, like technical. You put two fingers and grab your big toe and you do then the energy circulates like this and like this. That's how yoga has become because this is how the human beings have become and that's what the human beings need today if you want to practice an updated yoga. There are people in India who love Bhagavad Gita so much that they try to practice the technology from Bhagavad Gita, forgetting that Bhagavad Gita presents a technique which is at least 3,000 years old, and it won't work for modern people the same way. If you want to practice what Krishna says, you have to update it first of all. You have to bring a lot of props to it to make it a 21st century technique derived from the technique of Krishna, but not identical because the people to whom Krishna was talking, they live no more. Other people are living today with an other background. So here it is. Suddenly out of the blue after he spoke about those, pum, he comes with one of the two technical things in the Bhagavad Gita. He says, shutting out all external contacts and fixing the gaze between the eyebrows, equalizing the outgoing and incoming breaths, moving within the nostrils, and it continues because it's a coma, and I'm going to read the second, the 28 as well. So here are the conditions. I'm going to get through them. Shutting out all external contacts, fixing the gaze between the eyebrows, equalizing the outgoing and ingoing breaths that go through the nostrils. With the senses, the mind and the intellect controlled, having liberation as his supreme goal, free from desire, fear and anger, the sage is verily liberated forever. Krishna describes a technique for reaching liberation. It's the only yoga technique which you'll ever need if your purpose in yoga is spiritual liberation. If your purpose in yoga is to heal your liver or to, I don't know, activate your Manipura chakra because it's very weak, or then of course there are completely different standards and things to be practiced. But if your purpose in yoga is the fourth pillar of yoga, which is spirituality, moksha, then here is one technique coming directly from the horse's mouth. It comes directly from Krishna and this describes. Let's take it, let's analyze it. Having left external contacts outside. This is usually meaning in yoga, pratyahara, isolation from external contacts. So, what is the easiest form of pratyahara? Close your eyes. What is the next form of pratyahara? Close your ears. Like, don't see, don't hear, 
don't feel smell, don't feel taste, don't feel temperature or touch, be like completely insulated from external disturbance, from the senses. Some yogis even have taken this further, and that I don't necessarily say it is so, but it is a variation, which is described in the medieval Hatha Yoga texts, like in the 15th century, much later, yoga, which is basically the modern yoga that even today we are practicing, like you find that in Geranda Samhita, Hatha Yoga Pradipika and other texts, shutting out all external contacts can also be done by performing a yoga mudra, which is called Shanmukhi Mudra, where you plug your ears with your fingers, you close the eyelids, you close the nostrils, you close the lips, there are different ways of doing it, and thus you create like a mask with your own hands. This is a yoga technique called Shanmukhi Mudra, and interestingly enough, it also focuses the attention on the third eye. It's a technique for the third eye. You learn it in Agama, not in the first level of our yoga course, but somewhere in the Agama curriculum, this yoga technique, Shanmukhi, of course, is being taught it's a classic in yoga. So some people would say that Krishna, although Krishna doesn't explicitly say, use your fingers like uh, mudra and so on, it's interpretable. Some smart people who have seen that the yoga of Krishna is very old, as they try to bring it forth, as they try to bring it to the 20th century, they interpreted it because Sanskrit allows this interpretation. So the first condition, shutting out all external contacts, having left external contacts outside, the primary interpretation is do it with your mind, like do pratyahara, and the other is you can even do a shanmukhi mudra. For example, Paramahamsa Yogananda, the beloved Paramahamsa Yogananda, the one with the Kriya Yoga who lived in California in the last years of his life, in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, Paramahamsa Yogananda, his guru, Sri Yukteswar, and especially the guru of his guru, Lahiri Mahasaya, were very great fans of Bhagavad Gita. And therefore, their so-called Kriya Yoga is actually based on this. Everybody who will bother to analyze will find most of the elements described in these two shlokas as being nothing else but the Kriya Yoga technique. The mysterious Kriya Yoga technique is very much about plugging or focusing on Ajna Chakra, balancing the in-breath with the out-breath or using the in-breath with the out-breath and such similar things. And that is why, again, the Kriya Yoga technology, for those of you, we give here the initiation in the metaphysical workshops on that. So this year we already had it. Next year, if you catch the metaphysical workshop, you can even get initiated in that technique. Or otherwise, there are other centers in the world which give the Kriya Yoga initiation as well. So basically, I'm simply saying the Kriya Yoga technology as taught today is just an upgrade, an updating from Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is the root of all that. And then, of course, because it's too primitive, you, uh, Mahasaya, Lahiri Mahasaya and Sri Yukteswar and Yogananda, they realize that it has to be 
done a little bit with chakras, with prana, with some tantric elements, thus bringing it to the 20th century, updating it. But this is where the root of it is. And let's analyze it again. Shutting out all external contacts, either that means Shanmukhi Mudra or simply Pratyahara. Fixing the gaze within or between the eyebrows. That's a formulation in India which says when you look cross like this, up. Then of course the first thing which you see are the eyebrows. It's like you are looking between the eyebrows. The truth is that if you look from here between the eyebrows, if you make an angle of vision, they converge out here. And out here is not between the eyebrows. Out here is Ajna Chakra, is a few centimeters in front of the forehead. So it looks like you look between the eyebrows, but you don't look for the eyebrows. You look for the third eye. You look for the location of the third eye. And for somebody from outside, it looks as if you look at your own eyebrows. It's not the eyebrows which matter. That's just a milestone. It's a landmark to explain where you look. But you are not looking at the eyebrows. You are looking towards Ajna Chakra, towards the third eye. So what is this? This is a Trataka. If you do it with your eyes closed in Shanmukhi Mudra, that's exactly what you do that you are focusing your eyes, all those closed, although the eyelids are closed, you are looking under your eyelids, you are looking up here. The same thing is happening if you do simple pratyahara and you look up there, that is a technology which is called chanchari mudra or the internal, the frontal internal trataka. So therefore this technique in itself is preserved in other parts of yoga and used for other purposes. And everybody agrees that looking cross-eyed like this into Ajna Chakra is a method of powerfully stimulating Ajna Chakra. It's one of the most straightforward methods. It's not easy in the beginning because your eyes are not used to be crossed in that direction. It produces some unusual tensions, exactly as if you would be training to just bend one finger without the other. In the beginning, you may have the tendency to make reflex. But if you train stubbornly, then you can get to move some fingers independently. It's exactly the same here. After one month, such exercise becomes easy, simply because you did it every day. So... Shutting all external contacts by the mudra or simple closing the eyes and pratyahara. Fixing the gaze between the eyebrows. Equalizing the outgoing and incoming breaths. This means having balance the ingoing and outgoing breaths. How the, what is used in Bhagavad Gita here is prana and apana, which are very classical names in yoga and they are very slippery. And all those of you who have gone beyond the second level of yoga in Agama should know what the deal is because they actually mean the energy, the prana, the forms of prana which are associated to the breath. They don't really speak about the breath. The breath as it moves in and out, it carries with it some spe specific energies. And the yogis learn to feel, control, guide those energies. And this is what pranayama is. 
So here what Krishna says is interpretable on various levels. First level, equalizing the outgoing and incoming breath moving, breaths moving within the nostrils. That simply says you don't inhale, you don't exhale. You are reaching to a point where you are so calm that you seem not to breathe. Of course, it may be you are not 100% there, but people who have done meditation and techniques of concentration, they know that if your concentration gets very deep and if you are very calm and focused, sometimes you breathe very shallow once every 30 seconds, once even every 45 seconds. And it is almost as if your breath stops. That is exactly one interpretation. Like insulate, focus in Ajna Chakra, and become so absorbed that your breath like stops. Be in the midpoint where you are neither with the lungs full nor with the lungs empty. You are at the midpoint. And then you almost don't feel if you breathe or not. You are just so absorbed. Another way of dealing, of interpreting it is that you practice some retention of the breath and therefore you are not inhaling, not exhaling. Inhale, hold, focus in the third eye. The fourth interpretation of the fourth technical possibility is that you use the energy of inside and outside as a chain, as a holotropic breath thing that you breathe non-stop and the apana goes in prana and the prana goes into apana and it's a soft breath which has no end like constantly inhaling and exhaling. They use that very much in Kriya Yoga technology. You use some mantras such as hamsa, hamsa, hamsa and the breath goes on and on and in this way there is like no more inhaling, no more exhaling, there's just like a circle. The same thing is used by the Taoists in the embryonary breathing, in the microcosmic circuit and others. And finally, the, uh, there is an even more advanced, so there are four different interpretations of just this one little paragraph into a shloka, equalizing the outgoing and incoming breath. Those of you who got to study Kundalini Yoga here in Agama Yoga, you know that there is a special meaning of equalizing prana with apana. Mixing prana with apana, blending them, neutralizing them, actually it is the precisely the process used during the famous Shaktichalana Mudra, and this is a process which arouses Kundalini Shakti. It's a process which creates like a rising of energy, mostly through your spine, through your whole Nadi system, and this technology is something which you learn. I don't want to exp explain too much of it at this point because this is a satsang which goes over the internet and so on and I don't want to indicate technology which can be dangerous for people's health and uh, for people's practice. And, but that meaning is also there. And that's why everybody can choose whatever they want. The Kriya Yogis have chosen something here in Agama, you would say, sitting with the eyes closed, doing Shanmukhi Mudra or not, focusing in Ajna Chakra, doing Chanchari Mudra, and doing Shakti Chalana Mudra constantly, which means combining Prana with Apana. Here, 
it is put in a very materialistic way. It's not prana and apana, although those are the Sanskrit names used in the original. But it's like equalizing the outgoing and incoming breath. Let your guru explain to you what that is. That's the sort of the meaning. So the first three conditions were pratyahara, focusing in the third eye, equalizing apana and prana, whatever that me however educated you are in yoga whatever you can understand from that and then the next shloka 28 rounds up and he says with the senses the mind and the intellect always controlled that's a very tough one it basically says you should have purified ajna chakra ajna chakra is first of all the hub of the senses all the five senses are synthesized in the sixth sense in Manas Chakra and then in Ajna Chakra and therefore there is a synthesis of the senses. The senses can be controlled by the mind and actually here they say with the senses, the mind and the intellect. The word in Sanskrit for the mind is used here is Manas and the word for the intellect is buddhi. Those of you that studied Kashmiri Shaivism in this school, those of you that started advanced teachings in the school, you understand more clearly what is this story with senses, manas, buddhi. All these are nothing else but divisions of Ajna Chakra, subdivisions of Ajna Chakra, but they are very technical things. They refer to the structure of the mind. There is a lower mind called manas, there is a higher mind called the intellect or buddhi, but still they are both of them part of ajna chakra, only like different levels of refinement. So, with the senses, the mind and the intellect always controlled, that means maintaining an excellent concentration in ajna chakra, with ajna chakra purified already to a certain extent at least, Having liberation as his supreme goal, whose aim is liberation. Which means when you do this technique, on top of all the technical things described now, that you focus in the third eye, you equalize prana and apana, you control your mind and senses, you must at the same time in the background have aspiration. Ishvara pranidana. If you do this technique without having liberation as your supreme goal, then it won't work. So this technique says you do a chanchari mudra in Ajna Chakra with all that, with all the parifernalia, and at the same time you have aspiration. In the language of Kundalini Yoga, if you do Shakti Chalana Mudra and you get the shudders of energy running through your body from Kundalini, but you don't have aspiration, then your kundalini doesn't go to sahasrara. It goes chaotically, like an explosion throughout your body. When you rise kundalini, you need to bring kundalini here. Kundalini shakti must want to unite with Shiva, her beloved, up in the crown chakra. And that's why that simply says kundalini must be awakened on a background of aspiration. Kundalini without aspiration can be a bit of a tragedy sometimes because it's just a chaotic force which you, instead of putting where it belongs, 
it just does whatever it wants because you have no direction for it. And thus, here it is, a very important thing. You practice this and senses and mind control and having liberation as your supreme goal. Like when you do this technique, you say, I want nirvana, I want nirvana, I long for nirvana. Otherwise, you are not giving the proper direction to your practice. Free from desire, fear and anger, it's the same impurities of the mind, opposites. If you have the senses, the mind and intellect controlled, then you are kind of free from anger, desire and all those. So it's a bit of useless but he puts it again, that's a favorite theme in the Indian spirituality, then there are six conditions, therefore, we'll list them once more in a second, that sage, that yogi, is indeed forever free. This is how you reach liberation, six conditions. Pratyahara, concentrate on Ajna Chakra. balance prana and apana by one of the methods. With control your mind and senses. Aspire for liberation. And stay away from anger, desire and all those. You maintain this state. It doesn't even say, should you sit in Siddhasana when you do this? It doesn't say. You see, he doesn't care about the position of the body. The only physical thing which he says is that you look up between the eyebrows, which is a minimalistic physical thing. Minimal. Like it's almost no physical technology. Everything is internal, subtle. It's not too much physical. Today, when people do yoga, there are tons of physical details that you look into because that's like a ladder which takes you up to a place where you can be less concerned with the physical and intuitively know the directions inside without needing to help yourself so much with the physical prop. But today, yoga is different. So this is the technique from which Kriya Yoga of Yogananda, of Lahiri Mahasaya and other evolved. Most of the Kriyas, of the six Kriya techniques which they describe, are just derivatives from this one, and they are one way or another related to this, and they are considered sacred because Krishna himself taught that, and in India, Krishna is one of the biggest, if not the biggest, considered by some. Thus, let's sum up again. Having left external contacts outside, with a vision within the eyebrows, having balanced the ingoing and outgoing breath that flow through the nostrils, the sage whose senses, mind and intellect are controlled, whose aim is liberation, free from desire, fear and anger, have departed, from whom desire, fear and anger have departed, is indeed forever free. This is a whole story and it's just one technique. If any one of you wants to do one technique, here is an example. Bhagavad Gita outlines in the chapter 5, shlokas 27-28, a technique for spiritual liberation. Sit down and do it for the next 10 years until you reach spiritual liberation. It's not, uh, I'm not saying it as a sarcastic humor, because of course it will take a while to practice. It's not something which you succeed in one week or two. 
but I did not say it pejoratively or sarcastically. It's simply the fact that, as I very often said it, in yoga we have two extreme temperaments. There are people who just want one technique to do every day and only that one technique forever. And there are people who want to do 20 yoga techniques every day for 10 minutes each because they get bored to do one and the same thing for 200 minutes non-stop and their mind wants diversity. For those two kinds of people, the approaches in yoga are different. One person takes a trataka or a mantra or something and goes with it non-stop. The other person says, I've done 10 minutes of this. Now I'm going to do 10 minutes of this. I still have got one hour and a half. I'm going to do a bit of that. I'm going to do a bit of that. Therefore, temperaments are different. And you, of course, know to which one of those temperaments you belong what is your style of practicing yoga, it's, it's okay both ways. Remember the Latin proverb which says the bull fights with its horns and the eagle with its talons. The eagles cannot fight with the horns since they haven't got any horns provided by Mother Nature. And therefore, everybody has to adapt their yoga practice to their temperament. And that's why some people want to monodimensional yoga practice, a sort of compulsive, fanatic, just one thing at a time and again. Other people want diversity in their yoga, and there is something for everybody in yoga. You can choose that way or that way. Both of them will work specifically, of course. So here is a great practical breakthrough from the Bhagavad Gita, a technique paradoxically, of focusing on Ajna Chakra. People often ask me, Swami, didn't you say that the state of Samadhi is related to, Aj to Sahasrara, to the Crown Chakra? Yes, but at the same time I said, and if you didn't get it, get it now, that there are states of Samadhi which start already in Ajna Chakra. For example, Paramahamsa Yogananda claims, states very clearly, that the state of Nirvikalpa Samadhi, as described by Maharishi Patanjali in the Yoga Sutra, is related to Ajna Chakra, not to Sahasrara. Also, Ramakrishna Paramahamsa, when he describes the chakras, the rising of Kundalini through the chakras, he pointed to Ajna Chakra and he said, when Kundalini reaches this level, there is only a very thin veil which still separates the individual self from the universal self and one enters into samadhi. If Ramakrishna said it and Yogananda said it, then that is confirmed from Bhagavad Gita. Bhagavad Gita is right. Actually, Ajna Chakra also gives that. That's why in the school here you see, even now as we speak, there is a third eye retreat happening. That's why we have crown chakra retreat, third eye retreat. Crown chakra retreat, third eye retreat. Then there exists another method which came through Ramana Maharishi, the Hridaya method adapted by Sahajananda, which is going through the heart and also reaching some states of samadhi by using the heart, but that's an exceptional way of doing things. It's not that that is incorrect in any way. On the contrary, it's very correct. But that is an exceptional way. So in this way, what I'm trying to say here is this technology, focusing on Ajna Chakra, is...
consistent with the tradition of yoga. There is no mistake or misunderstanding. It is exactly the way Krishna says it. That's why so many yogis in India and Tibet, they worked on the third eye, because the third eye to them, it was good enough. It's true that in Agama Yoga, we have the full Kashmiri Shaiva tradition, and because of this, we work a lot on the crown chakra, and we have the, this full tantric science of the crown chakra as well, which simply makes Agama Yoga a very complete system, a more complete system than many other traditional ones, which use Ajna Chakra as the highest point and like sufficient. In Tantra, we say, in Agama here, we say Ajna Chakra is good, but that doesn't mean that Sahasrara is not very good also, and therefore both exist, both have their spiritual utility. And finally, to conclude the chapter number five, after which we'll enjoy a couple of shlokas from number six, after having simply popped in with these two shlokas, which are a yoga technique, suddenly at 29, Krishna, or at least the writer who wrote this on paper, is back in his ravings into philosophy. He was into philosophy in 25, he was into philosophy in 26, saying how wonderful you get if you do this and that, and how you reach Brahma Nirvana and all that. And then he gave two shlokas of a technology, albeit a very vague technology for the people from the 21st century. And then in 29, he concludes again philosophically and metaphysically. Shloka 29 says, He who knows me, and suddenly the tone changes, because until now Krishna didn't use it much, only at one point in the previous chapters, did Krishna pull the veil? Krishna suddenly gets tired of talking about Brahman and Nirvana and this. And he simply says, after all, I am this Brahman that I'm talking to you so much about. Because, reminder for those that heard it before, and news for those of you that never heard that before, Krishna is one of the Hindu equivalents for Jesus. Exactly as Jesus says, I am God, Krishna also says exactly the same thing. I also am God, only that Jesus is God that came 2,000 years ago, and I am a previous visitation of God. I am an earlier avatar. This visits of God incarnated in a human body are called avatars in India, and they don't mean what they mean on internet or in that lovely movie from recently. Avatara in Sanskrit originally means descent, like a descent of the divine in a human body. And thus, for the Hindus, Jesus is not a soul that evolves on this planet. Jesus is not from this planet, is from beyond it, Jesus is God that incomprehensibly projects itself into an embryo and is born as a human being. And every ignorant person would look and say, what? This is just a guy. It's just another dude. And then Peter tells him when Jesus says, who do you think I am? 
Peter after they had seen so many miracles and this. And Peter says, I'm actually afraid to say it, but I think you are the Messiah, the living Son of God. Like Peter suddenly can see that this is not a dude. It's not a chum. That's something else. And then Jesus is pleased and he says, flesh and blood could not have shown you that. Oh, Peter, this is the Spirit of God that went into you and made you see. Like it takes one to see one. It takes one to recognize one. How the heck did you, Peter, see through my masks and see who I really am? Because indeed I'm not a dude. I'm God visiting you, inspecting planet Earth, you know. And it's like the fact that you, Peter, saw it, it's beyond reason. Reason could not have made that leap. There is a leap from the finite to the infinite, which only grace could have done. The same thing is in the case of Krishna. Krishna is perhaps the more known, not the only one, Rama, thousands of years before Krishna, and others are other avatars of Vishnu. But the most beloved and perhaps the most famous, partly because of the Bhagavad Gita itself, is Krishna. And Krishna is therefore considered by the Orthodox Hindus not a soul subjected to the evolution on earth, but a visitor from above, a part, a particle of God incarnated miraculously by divine decree in the embryo of a woman and thus appearing as another human being to the ignorance so that the ignorance will not be disturbed from their sleep and they will continue sleeping saying Krishna what Krishna which Krishna there's no Krishna it's just another dude okay sleep sleep your hypnotic sleep there and continue being ignorant until your time will come and some people like Arjuna open their eyes and they know, wait a second, Krishna is Krishna, is God. There's something else there. So such the phenomenon of avatara is not invented in Christianity. It was known long time ago in Hinduism and it is metaphysically perfectly accurate. And that's why sometimes Krishna, when he gets too drunk with his own samadhi, he kind of starts drifting and then he starts speaking big words like even Jesus doesn't all the time says hey did you forget I'm God you stupid idiots and so on he keeps talking most of the time like a normal person but from time to time he goes on to into flames and then he says I and my father are one and the same you know like when he gets into a certain mood he crosses that line and then he blurts it out. Krishna is just about to blurt it out. He is in one of his moods. And now it's like, okay, Brahman, Nirvana and so on. It's me, after all. Let's cut the bullshit and let's say it straight. It's me. And of course, that talks that metaphysically is very significant. Because it's not a selfish thing. Everybody that has studied at least the Kashmiri Shaivist intro workshop in this school knows precisely what I'm talking about because it's about the I-ness. It's about the fact that at the highest level there is the I. When Moses asked God, God, who are you so that people will ask me, God doesn't say, I am Jehovah. God says, answers to Moses, 
I am he that I am. I am, I am. I am the I am. I am the I-ness. I am the, the self, the supreme self of the universe. Exactly as there is a who am I of the human being, there exists a who am I of the universe. And the who am I of the universe is God, the very sense of I. It's not ego. Ego represents something much lower of a psychomental level, an aggregate of emotions and other things which are of much, much inferior order. Krishna is way above the ego, so he doesn't speak from the ego, he just speaks from this sense of supreme identity. And then says Krishna, He who knows me, God, Krishna. You can say, but what if I don't want to connect it with Krishna? Connected to Jesus, connected to Rama, connected to the Buddha nature. It doesn't really matter. Of course, it's easy for Arjuna because Arjuna has Krishna right in front of him. And then it's like you, if I look at you, if I look in your eyes, can I see God? Like if you are an avatar, it means if you open your eyes and allow me to look into your eyes, I can see God. God is right in your eyes there, no? If you are an awakened divine being. But that's why, for example, beings in the condition of Krishna would avoid eye contact. I have, it's, there are so many stories about great yogis who were in samadhi or high states of consciousness, and they would, they would always avert their eyes, because if you look into their eyes, you would be sucked into the same state of consciousness in which they are, and you didn't earn it. You piggyback on their state, and then they have to take your karma, because they put you there for free without 15 years of yoga. And therefore, <coughs> such things are not done. Great masters and so on, when they get to such thing, they don't say, oh, come on, now I'm in Samadhi, look into my eyes, and you better start sweating a little bit for it, you know. It's like, it's not as easy as that. A teacher theoretically could make it easy, but it's not allowed to make it too easy, because if you make it too easy, it becomes cheap and it becomes disturbing, as I often told to people about what's happening if enlightenment happens too quickly, then you become split personality, Jekyll and Hyde, angel and demon, and there are a lot of things to, to deal with. So, but nevertheless, Krishna, to the face of Arjuna, he says, he who knows me, Krishna, God, Vishnu, Avatara, as the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities. Krishna says, who is the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities? Like people constantly make sacrifice. Some sacrifice can be the Jewish sacrifice that you burn a lamb in the fire. Some sacrifice can be a more refined sacrifice such as you are sacrificing the breath. I, I already made last season a huge commentary about sacrifice because sacrifice, many people understand it like a shamanistic, animistic, witchcraft, inferior thing. That's a very, very primitive understanding of the word sacrifice. You can, for example, take your sexual energy, such as the sperm of men and the menstrual blood of women, transmute it and sublime it to the high chakras, and offer it as ojas shakti back into your crown chakra. That's also a sacrifice. But you didn't have to kill any lamb 
or do any funny magic or witchcraft thing. It's an internal sacrifice in which the fire is inside you and the sacrifice is nothing else but a sublimation, a transmutation and a sublimation. So the sacrifice is a yoga technique ultimately. You can say that when you do Udhyana Banda and you bring your sexual energy up to the crown chakra, you are doing a sacrifice from the standpoint of Krishna. That's a sacrifice. Udhyana Banda can be considered also a sacrifice if you look at it from that angle. Udhyana Banda is Udhyana Banda, is Udhyana Banda. It's the same, but it depends what value you put on it, what you see it is. So Krishna says, it is me, or if you prefer, it is God that is the enjoyer of... Where do all the sacrifices go? God, I give you a lamb. God, I give you my life. God, I give you the fruits of my action. God, I give you my sexual energy. Where does all the sacrifice go? To God. And Krishna says, those who realize that the ultimate enjoyer of sacrifice, when it's spiritual, of course, because you can sacrifice to the demons, but the ultimate enjoyer of the sacrifice is always God. He says, me, the, as putting it on himself, the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities, austerity, what is the Sanskrit word for austerity? Tapas. The enjoyer of yagya and tapas. The enjoyer of all the sacrifices and of all the tapas. Is or should be God. Be very attentive because here Krishna puts it in a funny way. Krishna says, He who knows me as the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities attains to peace. And therefore he says, he who does not know me as the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities does not attain to peace. That simply says there are misguided people who instead of consecrating to God, instead of doing tapas for God, they do it for some demons, for some entities. Later, in the text, in a paragraph which probably we will not comment at least this season, because I intend to stop after the chapter 6, because the chapters 1 to 6 already give the gist, the essential teaching of karma yoga and of this basic metaphysical spirituality. But somewhere in the text, in the later chapters, this text has 18 chapters, this being, again, the end of chapter 5, in, the, in one of the next chapters... Krishna describes the tendencies of the people that are tamasic, rajasic, and sattvic. If you haven't done the second level of um, yoga here in Agama, you might not know exactly what tamas, rajas, and sattva means. They mean the three gunas, three aspects of the energy, and they are like the darkest one, the slowest one, the middle one still very agitated, and the highest, the pure one, the white one. The gunas represent three levels of refinement of the energy and they are related to Ajna Chakra. As a long theory, I do not intend to go now in the gunas. It's too much. It would take too long time. But the point being, Krishna explains to Arjuna, if you are a tamasic type of person, you feel like sacrificing to very low spirits such as to the spirits of the dead. 
There are so many animistic, shamanistic traditions in which the biggest sacrifices which they do, they do them to the ancestors. But somebody could say, come on, didn't you find something better than the ancestors? Truly, honest to God, some of those ancestors were assholes, were ignorant people. Not all the ancestors were wonderful people. Like in every generation, there were some people who were nicer, and you are consecrating to the ancestors and give food to the ancestors, alms and offerings, and say, may the ancestors protect us. Wouldn't it be better if you found somebody stronger like Shiva, for example, to protect you? Isn't Shiva better than all the ancestors of everybody on this planet put together and multiplied with a thousand? Like, why bother with the ancestors? Yes, but some people never know about Shiva. Their mind is not that high. They belong to very primitive, earthbound cultures. Some cultures where people are still at the level of cannibalism, of stone age, of real primitive religions, and their mind simply is blocked. There is a ceiling, and they can't go beyond that ceiling. And their mind cannot conceive of something higher. And therefore, some people can rise, even the shamans can rise their mind up to the ancestors and some other spirits. Oh, there is a spirit that heals hepatitis. There is a spirit that brings rain. Sure, there are such spirits. But why would you want to cooperate with them instead of cooperating with Lakshmi Devi? Or, you know, it's like, isn't there something higher? Of course, the higher it is, the more difficult it is to reach. So there is something which explains the ease of doing shamanistic, animistic, very low-level stuff. But then there are people who go beyond the ancestors and some primitive spirits, and they go to the levels of what the Greeks called the titans, the arch-enemies of the gods, and in India, they are called Asuras. Asuras and Titans are the same in India in Greece. And the Asuras are very powerful demonic entities, very egocentric, very proud, sometimes really hard. Some of them detaining incredible paranormal powers. And the Titans can support you. If you give them their blood price, whatever they ask, the titans can be much stronger friends than your ancestors or some primitive low degree spirits. So some people go to the titans that Krishna says, those are the rajasic people. The people are predominantly rajasic. They feel this hunger for power and they want to ally themselves with very manipuristic, selfish spirits, which know a deal, you know, like at least a deal is a deal. This guy, if I give him this, he will give me that, you know. It's like a power relationship that you establish. And above the titans are, of course, the gods, the devas, the suras, the asuras and the suras, the devas. And the devas are the gods of light. Even the gods of light, like Indra, Zeus, Jupiter, they are not completely clean. When you read the Indian mythology or the Greek mythology, you find out that Zeus, the king of the gods in Greek Olympus, was having many strange defects. 
and could be violent, could be arrogant, could sometimes be ridden by vanity and others. He was not entirely a saint. The gods are nice, sattvic, that's the level number three, but they still have an agenda. They are very powerful spirits which have creative powers and many, many great powers. They are more difficult to access than your ancestors. But once you make friends with Surya Deva by doing sun salutations, you make friends with Surya Deva. Surya Deva is a very great friend and a very, very powerful friend. More powerful than you can even imagine. Like Surya Deva is the one that can start or stop all the life in this solar system, like this. The sun, if the sun stops shining for a few days, life disappears from the planet Earth totally. And therefore, uh, this is what I say, the devas are already so powerful that some people will think, oh, that's God. Actually not. In English language and a few other languages, there is unfortunately this sad misunderstanding that the deities are called gods. And then you say God or a God. But I would prefer people to leave the word God for the one God and to use for Zeus and the likes of them deity. Those are deities, not God. God is one. And therefore... This is the third level of deities, which is sattvic. And Krishna, in that chapter, to conclude this long detour, Krishna says, even if you worship deities, if you consecrate to deities, it's good, it's sattvic, it produces many beneficial effects, but it's not me. Krishna says there are four levels. Ancestors, titans, deities and me the one God and Krishna says he who knows me as the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities that one attains to peace he who consecrates to Zeus he who consecrates to the Titans he who consecrates to the ancestors that's not karma yoga that does not produce the annihilation of karma, that does not produce the sublimation of everything to God, that does not produce the gift of grace, and therefore that does not lead to enlightenment. Oh yes, it can lead to a lot of good things, such as there are examples in the history of the earth where people acquired a terrible negative karma by doing war and violence and at the same time they sacrificed to the gods to some gods which can be considered some very demonic gods and they obtained many services in exchange for example in the second world war for many people in Asia the second world war was a sort of a religious Buddhist crusade and the Japanese, for example, they considered it very much so. If you will study a little bit deeper than the socio-economic stuff, materialistic stuff, which is fed to the history students in the university, and you would read books about what really happened, 
you will see that both the Third Reich of Adolf Hitler and the um, fascist state of Mussolini and the um, Buddhist things of Japan, they were correlated with Mongolia, with Tibet, with metaphysicians like Julius Evola and others. There was a skewed mysticism. There was a very strange mysticism in this. These people were worshipping the black sun, which is a sort of the demonic brother of the sun. The sun is Surya Deva, and then there would be the dark brother, the anti-sun, the titan, the Asura, which goes against the sun, the mirror, dark image, called in the West the black sun, and others and others. This rabbit hole is much, much deeper. Very few people realize that even as late as the 20th century in the Second World War, there is a lot of metaphysic esotericism and actually the reasons were reasons of a very occult. The people practicing these things were deeply immersed in occultism. It was not a divine occultism. But coming back to the story... For example, everybody knows that the Japanese in their race through, the, through Asia, they committed a lot of pain, a lot of atrocities, violence. As the French say, à la guerre comme à la guerre, in war as in war. And Albert Einstein said, war is the greatest crime perpetrated by people against people. Like nothing is worse than war, because in war everything happens. All hell breaks loose. And as much as people say that they respect the Geneva Convention, all, all sorts, everybody knows it's not true. And all the governments break it whenever they can, according to whatever power games they have to win. The only important thing is to win. Even if you step over dead bodies, it doesn't matter. That's the cruel truth of it on Manipura. And that is why, coming back to this example to explain, the Japanese people, in the name of the emperor and all that, they sacrificed Chinese, Burmese, Thais, English, American, whatever, to their Shinto gods. There was a very skewed mysticism. They had swastikas everywhere, but it was not the swastika of Hitler. It was the Buddhist swastika of Asia. And you can see that in both cases you have some negative karma. In, even in Germany and in Japan you can see a lot of guilt, a lot of karma, a lot of souls that are born that are having some karma. But at the same time you can see that economically they have become number one very quickly because the demons paid their debt back. The demons don't care of morality and ethics. They say, you gave me a million people, a million lives, I give you prosperity. It's true, the Japanese have one of the highest rates of suicide, and they suicide with monoxide, with carbon monoxide, and all sorts of ridiculous methods, because they may not be happy internally. Although they have a, such a developed economy, and such developed things, that still doesn't make people happy. The demons did not have to make them happy. The demons were paid a blood price. Realize, even the Second World War was a huge demonic holocaust. It was a sacrifice of lives to the beliefs of some people who believed in some gods, like 
Hitler believed in the Aryan gods. They sacrificed souls to Thor, to Odin, to all those. And of course they sacrificed to very demonic entities because the gods still have some limitations and they would not go beyond a certain level. But I can say something and mean something else. This rabbit hole is extremely, extremely deep. People don't see this thing. Remember that even Gurdjieff in the same 20th century said, it's not only about the Second World War. Even when you drive a car, the fact that we use automobiles, we have to sacrifice to the demons of automobiles. And that's why a percentage of the people that go in traffic die. And their souls are just a blood sacrifice unconsciously. It's not willingly admitted. It's unconsciously done by humanity out of ignorance to the demons of the automobiles which say you can use us if you pay 0.1% of the lives of the people that use us have to die and after death they come to us for a while. They are our slaves. This is very provocative for the people who do not understand shamanism, animism, spirit science, demonology and all those things. But that's how things are in Tantra and in all those. And that's why Krishna says, he who knows me and only me, he who, it's not even says, not only know knowing me, he who accepts me, he who takes me and only me, which means God, as the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities. Like Krishna always says, there is only one consecration. All the other consecrations, all the other three types, they are not yoga. They are witchcraft. That's magic. If you consecrate to God, that becomes karma yoga. It's a spiritual practice. It's not magic anymore. So Krishna says, he who knows me, he who realizes that I am the enjoyer, he who takes me as a target, as the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities, both sacrifices and tapas, the great Lord of all the worlds and the friend of all beings attains to peace. Very beautiful. He who knows, he who knows me to be the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities, the great Lord of all the worlds, of all the worlds, there is not a world which is out. That is the miracle of monotheism. God is one above all the deities and above anything else which exists. There is nothing which is outside the umbrella of God. There is nothing which is independent, self-standing or relative to God. God is the one and only, the supreme. And that is why Krishna explains here he doesn't go to polytheism or anything. Krishna goes here into monotheism. He says, He having known me as the enjoyer of yagyas and tapas, as the great lord of all the worlds, omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient, the one and only. This is monotheism in its most pure form. And it, can, it could be one of the oldest monotheistic expressions even before Moses 
it could be if we make a chronology of when did Krishna live, when did Moses live. Of course, the dates are always controversial, the timelines. But here is a very, very old witness of that. So having known me as the enjoyer of yagyas and tapas, as the great lord of all the worlds, as the friend of all beings, that's another nail in the coffin of the people who see God as unattainable, incomprehensible, detached, absent from here, and as Nietzsche put it in an extreme excess of ignorance, God is dead. God is not dead. God, according to Krishna, is not only the Lord of all the worlds, but is the friend of all beings. God is your friend, my friend, the friend of all the animals and the beings. That's why when you cut a tree, remember that God is the friend of that tree. When you kill an animal, remember that God is the friend of that animal, not only yours. People think only human beings are created for God and all the rest is not. Krishna says, the friend of all the beings. This is co exactly conversant or convergent with the statement of St. Mary of Egypt quoted in your lesson about the blessing. St. Mary of Egypt, when she first blesses God, she says, blessed be God who loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation. That's not an indifferent God who sits there and spins the thumbs and says, let's see what the idiots are doing down there. <laughs> Look how many words and stupid things they do. And God kind of doesn't care. Saint Mary of Egypt says God loves the humans and wishes for their salvation. If you ask God, God, what do you want for me? You got the answer from Saint Mary of Egypt. Saint Mary of Egypt apparently had a tete-a-tete -tete with God. And God told her, I want the salvation of each and every human being. Of course, it's not possible to have them all saved or enlightened at the same time because some are younger souls and some are older souls and some didn't finish their evolution. And therefore, some, for some, it will not happen in this life. They still have to live a thousand lifetimes before their enlightenment is ripe is attained, is deserved. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't want them. God knows that they... Sh so the divine consciousness wants the people to reach enlightenment, only, of course, not absurdly, but according to a divine common sense which rules the universe and the evolution of the beings. And so, exactly as Saint Mary of Egypt says, Blessed be God, who loves the human beings and wishes for their salvation, not, doesn't stay indifferent out there and watches, puts a shoulder into it, God pushes, the wheel of Dharma spins in a direction, and that direction is precisely Buddhahood. Exactly in a similar way, Krishna declares himself or God, either way will work. He says, he who knows me as the enjoyer of sacrifices and austerities, the great Lord of all the worlds, and the friend of all beings. God, Krishna declares himself friend of all beings. This is not a neutral relationship. 
God is not neutral to you. In Christian language, God loves you and wishes for your salvation. In Hindu terminology, God is your friend. God wants to... A friend is always someone that helps you, that is trying to bring the best in your life, because otherwise friendship is not friendship anymore. Friendship is based on love. So Krishna, in this way, puts, sets the standard to the highest. That's the missing piece. He who knows me, Krishna, God, as the enjoyer of sacrifices and tapas, the great Lord of all the worlds and the friend of all beings, that one attains to peace. Are you looking for peace? Shanti, 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 he. That's where the peace is. Understanding God as the target of all the consecration and of all the austerities. Realizing that God is the Lord of all the worlds. There is nothing else besides God. And last but not least, that, the, that God, the divine consciousness, is the friend of all beings. Actually, Krishna could have pushed it further, but he didn't because this is still a public text. Krishna could have said, me, God, not the friend of all beings, being all beings, the reality behind all beings. That's what Abhinava Gupta would have said in the 10th century in a monistic, non-dualistic, tantric, Shaiva environment. But Krishna simply says, for a mysterious reason which I don't bother to explain, God is the friend of all beings. God is the friend of all beings because God is all beings and God cannot be against himself. God loves himself. Shiva loves himself. And that's why, of course, Shiva loves you because you are Shiva. Otherwise, why would there be love to something which is extraneous, to something which is external? So the truth is even deeper. Here Krishna formulates it dualistically and obliquely. God is your friend. That's why God is your friend. Not because God had a whim and said, Oh, I decide to be the friend of all the beings. It's organically impossible that the creator will be severed from the creature and they will not be organically one. A drop of water, even when it is sprayed out of the ocean, still remains H2O, and eventually it will belong to the ocean once more again. Therefore, even when you are separated from God as a creature, you do not stop being part of God as essence in your essence. There is only the appearance of differentiation. That is why here the rabbit hole, of course, goes deeper. But it is enough. Krishna made the point. Make God the target of all your sacrifices and austerities. Understand God as omnipresent, omnipotent, omniscient, universal consciousness of all the worlds, of all the realities. And connect to God, to this cosmic consciousness, connect as to a friendly thing. Maybe you'll discover in time it is even more than friendly. But the least which you can do is to say this divine consciousness is my friend. It wants something friendly for me. It loves you 
and it wishes for your salvation. With this we have finished the chapter number 5 and since I spoke a bit too much, we stop here for tonight. Next satsang I'm going to start directly with the chapter number 6 called the Yoga of Meditation in which Krishna brings another wonderful array of teachings, of metaphysical teachings. Now as we stop with the chapter 5, let us stay for a few moments in silent meditation, allowing the meanings of all these to sink in, and then we will stop for tonight. A few minutes of silent meditation, whatever meditation you know or practice, for allowing to your subconscious mind to swallow harmoniously the great truths 